listen, this is God's wisdom. And to whatever extent we reflect these qualities is merely a reflection of God himself. And so this is how God is toward you and toward me. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What are the seven qualities of heavenly wisdom that are most important, and how are they made manifest in your life? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part nine of a series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. The third chapter in the letter from James outlines the core source and outcomes of true biblical wisdom. As we've discovered so far, according to James, the label Christian does not always make a person a Christian, and that the advertising of a righteous person may be, in fact, false advertising. But how does this truth apply to the pursuit of wisdom? Let's join our teacher to find out here on The Word Unleashed. Things aren't always what they appear, especially when it comes to advertising. You see this constantly in the fine print, or there's the half-filled cereal box, and somewhere on the package, the manufacturer adds this little line, contents may have settled during transport. Who are they kidding? Or there's real estate. That's another sort of advertising mecca. You know, you see that little line, wonderful starter home. Sounds like such a wonderful thing, doesn't it? In reality, it means that you will need more money than Fort Knox to fix that home, and it will require more effort than any single family is willing to expend to make the place livable. Well, this concept of advertising, mislaying the truth, is not a new problem. You may have not thought much of Greenland. Greenland is the world's largest island. It may also be history's greatest real estate development scheme. Eric the Red, who you probably heard about in history class, Eric the Red was a Viking who was forced to leave his home in Iceland after a brutal fight in which he killed a couple of his countrymen. And in 982, Eric the Red sailed west and arrived at a new land. But he soon discovered that what we call Greenland was anything but. It was a terribly bleak place. Most of the island lies north of the Arctic Circle, and 85% of Greenland is perpetually covered in a thick coating of ice. So Eric the Red had a problem. He didn't want to live there by himself. He wanted to encourage other Icelandic peoples to come and move there with him. But who would want to live in such a place? So he deliberately named the island Greenland, a clever advertising ploy. And those Icelanders, they bought it hook, line, and sinker. In fact, 25 boats filled with four to 500 settlers made the journey from Iceland to Greenland. What a misnomer. Eleven of the boats were lost on the journey. Only 14 of them arrived. But when they arrived, they soon discovered that what had happened is they had been taken in by history's biggest real estate scam. It wasn't at all what they expected. 
they should have read the fine print. Just as in the physical world, I was reminded that in the spiritual world, things are not always as they appear. You can't always believe the label. You can't always put your confidence in the promises that advertising sets forth. What is advertised may not be, in fact, what you're getting. And that's what James has been trying to tell us throughout his letter, that the label Christian does not make a person a Christian, and that the advertising of a righteous person may be, in fact, false advertising. And he's made this point very pointedly in the last section of James chapter 3. This morning we come to our last look at these verses. I hope you've enjoyed the journey as much as I have. But we're going to complete this paragraph this morning. Let me read it for you again one last time. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As we've learned over the last four weeks, these verses contrast two distinct kinds of wisdom. There is the truly biblically wise man or woman who is characterized by a true spiritual maturity, who has embraced the wisdom of God as it's set forth in this book. But there is also a second kind of wisdom that James wants to warn us about. There is a kind of person who thinks he lives by God's wisdom. He's convinced himself. He may even have convinced others by using pious language, by showing off his biblical knowledge, by spending lots of time in spiritual exercises. But this person has in fact embraced a counterfeit wisdom. It's not the real thing. It has its origins in demons and those opposed to God. Last week, we began to look in verses 17 and 18 at James' analysis of heaven's wisdom or true godly wisdom. We saw the source of that wisdom It is the wisdom, verse 17 says, that comes down from above. That is, it comes from God. It is a gift of God's grace. Listen carefully. The seed of wisdom always accompanies genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment of your salvation, if you're in Christ, God planted within you the seed of godly wisdom. And that seed, Scripture tells us, slowly grows into a full harvest of wisdom throughout our lives as we use the means that God has provided, chiefly the Word of God. That's the source of God's wisdom. We also noted last week the chief characteristic of heaven's wisdom. You remember back in verse 13, we learned one key quality of godly wisdom is gentleness. That is a calm, trusting acceptance of God's providence in our lives. And it's a humble, gracious, 
gentle spirit toward others. That's an important part of wisdom. But in verse 17, we saw last week, there is a second key quality that's always associated with this wisdom. We could even call this the chief characteristic of heaven's wisdom. It is purity. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. First means chief, foremost, of first importance. James means that purity is logically foundational to the other virtues of wisdom. Now, what is this purity? Well, we discovered that pure has primarily two senses in the New Testament. One is moral or sexual purity, free from defilement of sins of the sexual variety. And secondly, it means devotional purity or wholehearted inward devotion to Christ. But really, the two go together. That's the chief characteristic of spiritual maturity or godly wisdom. It is first and foremost pure. In the last part of verse 17, James lists for us what I would call the complementary characteristic of heaven's wisdom. The complementary characteristics of heaven's wisdom. We've seen the chief one, purity is the chief quality, but with the word then, we transition out of the state of the heart, which is purity, to how godly wisdom responds to others. Then means afterwards importance. It's first pure, and then afterwards in importance, it's these other things. We learn that there are seven other qualities that accompany a life lived in godly wisdom. Now, it's clear that James has already laid the foundation for these qualities. Look back in verse 13. If you have godly wisdom, you're going to show it in your deeds or in your wise actions. And in verse 13, he also says that those obedient actions will be sustained in what he calls good behavior or as a way of life. And now he's going to tell us what those qualities are. Now, in the Greek text, there is something here that is not obvious in English. It's clear in the Greek text that James gave considerable thought to how to arrange these seven qualities. There are three groups. The first three all begin with the same Greek letter and have similar sounding endings. And then the middle two, as in English, are subordinated with the word full. And the last two begin with the same Greek letter and have a very similar metrical sound. Now, why would James have bothered to do that? Remember, it is a letter after all. Well, remember that James lived in a culture without a printing press. Not every individual member who heard this letter would have a copy for himself. In fact, the letter would be read in a corporate gathering of the church like this. And so almost certainly, James arranges these qualities in such a way, he puts them in a sort of metrical, rhythmical setting to enable and encourage their memorization. Now, we don't have to do that. We have multiple copies of James sitting on shelves around our house. But the fact that James wanted his first readers to memorize this list stresses its importance to us. Let's look briefly at these seven qualities that James thought were so important as to present them in a form that they could be easily remembered by those who heard this letter read. The first is 
peaceable. This word occurs only two times in the New Testament here in Hebrews 12:11. There has always been throughout Scripture a connection between peace and wisdom. Listen to Proverbs 3:17, speaking of wisdom. It says, "All wisdom's paths are peace." But what does it mean, peace? Well, a leading dictionary of Greek words says that this word peaceable means ready for peace. Ready for peace. Now, this does not mean acquiescence in everything. You know, some people just don't want confrontation. They don't want trouble. And so they just give in constantly. They're always after peace. So whenever there's confrontation, they just immediately give in. That's not what this is talking about. It's not like the man who was asked, how he and his wife had managed to have so few arguments in 50 years of marriage. And he said, well, you know, when we were married, on the day we were married, we agreed together that we would do something to keep conflict down in our relationship. We decided that I would make all of the big decisions and that my wife would make all the small decisions. And we've done that faithfully. And in 50 years of marriage, there has yet to be a big decision. It's not acquiescence. It's not giving in. Neither is it toleration of sin. It's not just sweeping things under the rug that are sinful in order to have peace. Nor, and this is important that you understand, is James encouraging compromise with our agreement with error. A better definition of this word would be this. Peace-loving. Peace-loving. Listen, there are times to fight. There are times to fight for purity, for holiness, for truth. But unfortunately, there are some people, even preachers and Christian ministries, that enjoy fighting. James says that a person who has this quality hungers for peace even while he's fighting. He doesn't enjoy it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. To be a peacemaker or to be peaceable means two things. It means, number one, that you must seek to preserve peace where it exists. And secondly, you must promote peace where it does not exist. And the New Testament is full of examples of both. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Preserve it. Romans 14, 19. Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Pursue it. Promote it. Try to gain it. You say, but aren't there some people who just refuse to be at peace? Even when you try, they, they just want to fight? Absolutely. In fact, I have known people like that in my life with whom you try to work things out and all they want is a fight. Scripture speaks to that situation. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. By the way, that isn't an excuse just to sort of give up. It's a challenge. Have you used every conceivable means and every resource you have to be at peace with others? One famous prayer says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace where there is hate may I bring love, where offense, may I bring pardon, may I bring unison in place of discord. Those words, if prayed sincerely from the heart, 
embody the prayer of a truly spiritual person? Is that how people, the people who live with you, the people who know you best, is that how they think of you? Are you known as a person who loves peace, as a peacemaker, as a peaceable person? The next quality, number two, is gentle. Gentle. Now, this is not the same Greek word as the word gentleness back in verse 13. This word is best translated big-heartedness or graciousness. It refers to a generous treatment of others. It's looking for the best in the worst of people. It's similar to our expression, cutting people slack. The commentator D. Edmund Hebert says, it conveys the thought of respect for the feeling of others, being willing to waive all rigor and severity in its dealings with others. You know, it's wonderful that this is a quality of our God. Psalm 86, verse 5 says, You, Lord, are good and, and the Septuagint uses the word gentle. It's true of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, I, Paul, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's required of elders, 1 Timothy 3, 3, and it's commanded of every single Christian. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul includes this in a list of ways to gain spiritual stability. He says in verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Be known for this quality of graciousness, big-heartedness with people. In Titus chapter 3, he puts it this way. He says, Titus, teach the people in your church to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You say, how can you do that? How can you be gracious and big-hearted toward people who are sinful and live such terrible lives? You don't know the guy I work with or the person I work with. You don't know how they talk or what they do. Well, Paul explains how it is we can keep this perspective here in Titus chapter 3. After he tells Titus to teach this, he says, here's the motivation, verse 3. For, because, remember that we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Here's how you can stay gracious in your mindset toward others, even those who are living terrible lives of sin, those unbelievers who are all around us. John Blanchard relates a story about a man by the name of Dr. William Trumbull. Trumbull was traveling by train, and into his compartment came a man who was obviously drunk and sat down. The man pulled a bottle of liquor from his pocket. By the way, in the last service, I coughed at that moment and took a drink from my water. Let me assure you that this is water that I'm drinking. The man pulled a bottle of liquor from his pocket and offered Dr. Trumbull a drink. Trumbull replied, no thank you, I don't drink. Over the next couple of hours, the same interchange happened a couple of more times. Finally, after the third exchange, the man seemed to feel a sense of shame, and he said to Trumbull, you probably think I'm a beast. Trumbull immediately responded, on the contrary, I think you're a very generous man. Trumbull could have preached against his drunkenness. He could have left the compartment in disgust. 
But instead, he looked for the best in the worst of men. By the way, that's not the end of the story. That man eventually came to faith in Christ because of Trumbull's gentle spirit that day on the train. Robert Johnstone writes, The Christian man loves to make allowances for the ignorance and weakness of others, knowing how great need he stands in constantly of having allowance made for himself, both by God and man. I can promise you that if you struggle with this gentleness, this big-heartedness, this graciousness toward others, it's because you and I have not fully come to appreciate our own situation. Are you a peace-loving peacemaker? Are you gracious with people? The third quality is reasonable. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is found. The Greek word is a compound word. It comes from two Greek words, one meaning easy and the other to be persuaded. It literally means to be easily persuaded. Now that doesn't mean we should be gullible. Instead it means that we should be easy to be entreated. It's a willingness to listen to others and even to learn from them. It's the opposite of stubbornness. Douglas Moo says it's a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. A deference to others when the heart of our faith isn't at stake. There are a lot of illustrations of this biblically, but the one that stands out to me is back in 1 Samuel. Turn there for a moment, 1 Samuel 25. It's the story of David and Abigail. I wish there were time to trace through this entire passage. I encourage you to read it at some point. It's very interesting. We don't have that time, so let me just hit the highlights. 1 Samuel 25, verse 2, there was this man whose business made him very wealthy. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. His name was Nabal, verse 3, his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. David and his men are out there, and David sends to this man for help for himself and his warriors that are with him. They have already assisted Nabal and Nabal's shepherds, as that plays out in the story. Verse 9, so they come and ask, David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal, According to all these words in David's name, then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. In other words, I don't have any respect for his authority. I don't care who he is. He's probably just another wannabe king. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men whose origin I don't even know? So David, of course, his men go back and tell him what's happened. Verse 13, he says, each of you gird on your sword. David girded on his. About 400 men went up. They're going for one purpose, and that is to kill Nabal and every male in his household because he's in a state of rebellion against the king. Abigail hears about it, Nabal's wife. And Abigail goes to appeal to David. Verse 26 she comes to David. She says, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. She brought a gift. She asked for forgiveness for her husband. And she says, Don't do this. 
Because verse 31, if you will stop now, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. Notice David's response. Now, David had every right to be angry, and he was, had already been anointed king, and so he felt like he had authority behind him. He'd been angered by the way this man had responded to him, and yet notice how he responds. Notice the reasonableness of his response. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Tom will have part 10 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1 577 Word. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.